A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, for this second Sunday of the Lenten season, Holy Mother Church focuses our attention on Matthew's account of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. Now, as I pointed out to you in our last episode, every first Sunday of Lent centers on one of the gospel accounts of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Given that we're in year A, we focused in on Matthew's account. For every second Sunday of the Lenten season, we always focus on one of the gospel accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus. Once again, given that we are in year A, which centers on Matthew's gospel, we are reading from Matthew's account. So the first two Sundays of Lent always center on these events, significant events in the life of our blessed Lord, namely his temptation in the wilderness for the first Sunday of Lent and for the second Sunday, we always focus in on the transfiguration. Now, as I pointed out in previous episodes, since we've begun our exploration of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, as I pointed out repeatedly, portrays Jesus as a new and greater Moses. And we find tremendous evidence for this in this gospel account of the transfiguration, incredible parallels. And what I'd like to do is go through this gospel and contrast Matthew's account with what we find in Exodus chapter 24. I think this is going to really illuminate your minds as you consider this passage through the lens of the Old Testament. There are incredible typological connections here. So let's take a look at this. Beginning with verse 1 of our gospel, which states, and I quote, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And when you look at those details. Jump with me to Exodus chapter 24, because we find numerous parallels. You see, in verse 9, we read as follows, and I quote, Then Moses and Aaron, who is his brother, Nadab and Abihu, 
and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Let's stop there. So we find here in Exodus 24 a parallel. We find Moses ascending Mount Sinai and he ascends with three figures, Aaron, his brother, Nadab and Abihu, who are Aaron's sons, the nephews of Moses. So it stipulates three individuals. Moses ascends with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Jesus ascends the Mount of Transfiguration with three figures. Peter, who is the New Testament equivalent of an Aaron, who was Moses' right-hand man. He was the high priest. Peter is also Jesus' right-hand man, the rock upon which Christ will build his church. He is a high priest of sorts of the New Testament, along with James and John, who are brothers, just like Nadab and Abihu were brothers. And so Moses ascends with three figures. Jesus ascends with three figures. They ascend a high mountain. Mountains are synonymous with, they represent places of encounter with God, where heaven meets the earth. And so we're also told, going back to the gospel in verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. After six days. So on the seventh day, Jesus ascends this mountain. Why is that detail important? Well, go back to Exodus 24. Because it says here in verse 15, Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud that is the Shekinah glory cloud. The cloud covered the mountain. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he, namely God, called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Let's stop there. Do you see the parallels? They are unmistakable. Matthew tells us that after six days, namely on the seventh day, Jesus took these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They ascended a high mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Here, we're told, the glory of the Lord descended upon this mountain in the form of a glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, God calls out to Moses. What do we find on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus ascends after six days. On the seventh day, they ascend this mountain. Jesus is transfigured. We read further along in chapter 17 that the mountain was enveloped in a glory cloud. And out of the midst of the cloud, God the Father speaks. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you see the parallels? They are incredible. In fact, if you go to verse 2, it says, and Jesus, this is verse 2 of chapter 17, our gospel, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. We find another parallel, my friends. If you go with me to Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 29, we read as follows, and I quote, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in his hand, 
as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Verse 30, And when Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Now, compare and contrast that with Matthew's account. Verse 2, we read, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. But there's a notable difference, my friends. Moses' face shone because he was in the presence of God. Remember that he ascended the mountain, and the glory of the Lord descended in visible form. It enveloped the mountain in the form of a cloud. And because Moses was in the presence of God, his face began to shine, hmm? reflecting the glory of the Lord. Now, in the case of Jesus, note this. Jesus ascends the mountain, the high mountain, many believe to be Mount Tabor, in the Galilee with his three disciples. And we're told in verse 2 that he was transfigured before them. There is no mention of a glory cloud. Not until a few verses later. See, he's transfigured before them. Before the cloud envelops Mount Tabor, Jesus is already transfigured. Now, what's the difference? In the case of Moses, Moses' face shone because of the glory of the Lord that he beheld. He was in the presence of God, enveloped in the glory cloud of the Lord. In the case of Jesus, he was not enveloped in this glory cloud. No, he, before the glory of the Lord descended upon this mountain, he was already transfigured because the glory of the Lord, the God-man Jesus Christ, emanated from within because he is the God-man. And he gave his disciples a glimpse of his glory, the glory of the God-man. And so this glory that emanated from the Lord, his face shone like the sun, his garments became dazzling white. This emanated from within, pointing to Jesus' divinity. Only later are we told that in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And then a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So only after Jesus is transfigured does the cloud envelop the mountain and the voice of the father is heard. That's important, my friends. This points to the fact that Jesus is not merely another Moses, one like unto Moses, but he's a greater Moses. Remember that there was a promise there was an expectation, I pointed this out numerous times since we've been exploring Matthew's gospel, that there was an expectation. Going back to the Old Testament times, there was a promise made to Moses and that Moses communicated to the Israelites that one day God would send another messenger, one like unto Moses. In fact, if you turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, we read as follows, and I quote, The Lord your God, this is Moses speaking to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. Him you shall heed. In other words, him you shall listen to. This is the promise 
uttered by God to Moses, that Moses then transmitted to the Israelites, that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren, him you shall heed. Does that sound familiar? Because when we go back to our gospel, once again, verse 5, he was still speaking when, lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A wonderful and powerful parallel between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was this promise, him you shall heed, him you shall listen to. And what does the Father say from the cloud? He is commanding his disciples, Jesus' disciples, to listen to Jesus, to heed Jesus, his words, his teaching, indicating that this is the promised one, the promised Messiah, the prophet that was to come. They were to listen to him. Incredible. Now, when we continue in the text, it says in verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. And the Greek word that's employed there is the word metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Now, in the Old Testament, we find numerous allusions to heavenly beings, the angels. And in Daniel chapter 7, you have the example of the Ancient of Days in that iconic passage, that messianic passage, speaking of the Son of Man, which is an allusion to Jesus. In describing the Ancient of Days, if you look at verse 9, it says here, as I looked, thrones were placed and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And so this description of the ancient of days, which is an image of God the Father, we find this description that his raiment was white as snow. And so in describing Jesus and his transfiguration, we're told that his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. It's no surprise that later on in the text, we find Jesus, as he is instructing his disciples as they descend from the mountain, he says to them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is one of Jesus' favorite titles. He describes himself as the Son of Man, this messianic figure who was promised in passages like Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man will receive glory and power and dominion. This is a reference to the Messiah, the one who was to come. And so when we read this text, we know that Jesus is being described here as a divine being. We look at verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Let's stop there. Moses and Elijah appear conversing with Jesus. Immediately we have to ask ourselves, why? Why do Moses and Elijah appear conversing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Both Moses and Elijah, these were mighty men of God. They were prophets. Prophets called by God to fulfill 
critical missions within the framework of salvation history. What's more, both Moses and Elijah were miracle workers. They were wonder workers. Not all the prophets were miracle workers, but these two illustrious prophets, they were. They performed many signs and wonders, prodigious acts of God. They both prayed and fasted for 40 days and had encounters with God on mountaintops. In fact, on the same mountain, Mount Sinai, otherwise known as Mount Horeb. In addition to that, both of these figures, both Moses and Elijah, they are bound to, they are connected with eschatological promises. In the Old Testament, as I pointed out, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, we have the promise that God issues to Moses and to the people of God that he was going to send one like unto Moses to teach them. They were to listen to him. They were to heed him. What's more, we have the promise from God that he was going to send Elijah the prophet. Remember that Elijah was taken up into heaven on a fiery chariot. And the Old Testament, for example, in passages like, go with me to Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. And this is a description of the great day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. We read in verse 4, quote, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And so God is invoking here the memory of Moses. Remember the law of my servant Moses. And then in the next verse, verse 5, we read as follows. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so what do we make of this? Well, not only were the people on the lookout for the promised one like unto Moses, the new Moses, but they also were on the lookout for the prophet Elijah, who was promised by the Lord. He was promised to return, both Moses and Elijah. And who do we find on the Mount of Transfiguration, conversing with Jesus, both Moses and Elijah? This is significant, my friends. You can imagine the response of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were Jews. They were familiar with the scriptures. They no doubt understood the significance of this moment. But what's powerful here is that they're conversing with Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that they were conversing with Jesus about his exodus. Again, another allusion to the Old Testament and to Moses in particular, the one who led God's people through the exodus, from slavery to freedom, from Egypt to the promised land. And so they're discussing Jesus' exodus, his exodus. Now, what is Jesus' exodus? Well, they're speaking with Jesus, conversing with Jesus about his impending passion and death on the cross. You see, that is the exodus of Christ. He's going to lead us into the promised land. He's going to liberate us from the slavery of sin through his passion, death, and glorious resurrection from the dead. And this is what they are conversing with Jesus about on the high mountain, on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Simon Peter, Simon Peter, because of what is unfolding, the transfiguration of Jesus coupled with the presence of 
both Moses and Elijah, it's overwhelming for Simon Peter. He, going back to the gospel, we're told, declares, going back to verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, let's stop there for a second. What's going on here? Well, clearly, Peter, along with James and John, they are having a mountaintop experience. I mean, just place yourselves in the first century sandals of these three disciples, what they're witnessing. They've witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. They're getting a glimpse of his glory, his divinity. In addition to that, they are in the company of Moses and Elijah. It couldn't get bigger than this. What a moment. What an experience. And so Simon Peter's inspired. He, he cries out to Jesus, it is well that we are here. And we want to remain in this moment. We want to preserve this moment. And so he is inspired to, to suggest to Jesus, listen, I, it is so good that we are here. Let me Give me permission to build three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the, the Greek term that's employed there for, for booths or tents is skenas. And this is the term for tabernacle or tent. And this is reminiscent of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the great feasts that the Jews celebrated, where they would build these, these tabernacles, these outdoor tents that they would live in for a period of seven days. And this was to recall the fact that for over 40 years, their ancestors, they wandered through the desert, through the wilderness for 40 years, and they dwelt in tents, in tabernacles. That God himself, throughout these 40 years, had dwelt in a tent or tabernacle as well. Simon Peter here is desiring to savor the moment. He's inspired to suggest to Jesus that he be allowed to to build three skenas, three booths or three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, that it would be fitting, given the significance of this moment on this mountaintop, that he be allowed to build these three tents, that they should dwell on this mountain. And this is reminiscent, again, of the Old Testament. It's reminiscent of the Israelites and God himself who dwelt in a tent in the wilderness. So how fitting would it be for Simon to build these three tents for them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But there's something deeper here. There's actually an Old Testament prophecy concerning the worship of God. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, we read as follows, and I quote, Behold, a day of the Lord is coming. Then jump with me to verse 16. Then everyone that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And so there is, I would suggest to you, a deeper meaning, a prophetic meaning to this, this suggestion on the part of, of Simon Peter. He wants to build three booths, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And when you read Zechariah and this prophecy concerning the fact that in the end, all nations shall stream to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, to worship the true king, who we know to be Jesus. 
So there are all these connections, again, with the Old Testament, with the Exodus event, and with certain prophecies concerning the age to come, the age of, of the King of Kings, who would be worshipped by all the nations. Beautiful. Now getting back to the gospel, we continue. It states here, and Peter said to Jesus, verse 4, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, verse 5, when lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. They were filled with awe, with fear. This is reminiscent of what we picked up when we read that snippet, that passage from Exodus chapter 34, that when they beheld the face of Moses that was shining, it was resplendent, that they became fearful. (laughs) They became fearful because they knew that he was in the presence of God Almighty. And so they were struck with awe and wonder and fear. And here we find the disciples responding in the same way with awe and wonder. They, when they heard this, the voice of God emanating and coming from the cloud, we're told they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus, verse 7, came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. So they were filled with fear. Jesus comes and he touches them and commands them to what? To rise. Because they had fallen on their faces, just like the Israelites had when Moses descended from the mountain of God, when they beheld his countenance that was shining. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Verse 8, And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now let's stop there, because that's significant. He touches them, and he reassures them. He commands them to rise. Be not afraid. And when they open their eyes, they see only Jesus. Where is Moses? Where is Elijah? Well, they're gone. They're gone. And the one that remains is Jesus. And this points to, again, going back to what we said before, that Jesus is not only the new Moses, but he is a greater Moses. Moses recedes. Elijah, likewise, they recede into the background. In fact, they disappear. And the one that remains is Jesus because he is greater than Moses. He is greater than Elijah. He is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate mediator of this new covenant. And so it's fitting that that in the end, as, as Matthew describes this event, that, that Moses and Elijah, they appear certainly to validate Jesus's ministry, that Jesus is the promised one. He is the new Moses. He's greater than Elijah. And what's more, he is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. But then they disappear. The one who remains is Jesus because he is the fulfillment. They behold the countenance of God. 
Another thing to keep in mind is that both Moses and Elijah, these were Old Testament prophets who longed to see the face of God. If you look at passages like Exodus chapter 33, in the case of Moses, 1 Kings chapter 19, in the case of Elijah, they're both expressing a desire to see God truly face to face, to behold his countenance. But we know that no human being, no mere mortal can see the face of God and live. And so they're deprived of this beatific vision until they appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. Bram Petrie, the great biblical scholar, points this out in his commentary that both Moses and Elijah, it's fitting that they appear on the Mount of Transfiguration because these are two prophets who expressed their longing to see the face of God. And they see the face of God as they behold the transfigured countenance of Jesus, who is the God-man, who is God-made flesh. I just think that's powerful. Now, with regard to Moses and Elijah, let me just share with you a quote from one of the great church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, regarding the presence of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, why it was fitting that they be present there. He states, and I quote, He namely Jesus, brings Moses and Elias before them, before these disciples. And Elias is another way of saying Elijah. He brings Moses and Elias before them. First, indeed, because the multitudes said that Christ was Elias and one of the prophets. Let's stop there. This is a reference to Jesus, the question that he poses to the disciples as they traveled up to Caesarea Philippi. Who do men say that I am? What was their response? Well, some say you're Elias or Elijah or one of the prophets. So this is what Chrysostom is referring to here. He continues, quote, he shows, this is Jesus, he shows himself to the apostles with them, namely with Moses and Elias, that they might see the difference between the Lord and his servants. And again, because the Jews accused Christ of transgressing the law and thought him a blasphemer as if he arrogated to himself the glory of his father, he brought before them those who shone conspicuous in both ways. For Moses gave the law and Elias was zealous for the glory of God, for which reason neither would have stood near him if he had been opposed to God and to his law and that they might know that he holds the power of life and of death, he brings before them both Moses, who was dead, and Elias, who had not yet suffered death. Let's stop there for a second. We know that Moses died. He did not enter the promised land with the Israelites. He was prevented from doing so. We know that Elias, or Elijah, was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And so this goes to show that Jesus has the power of life and of death. He brings before them, Chrysostom points out, both Moses who was dead and Elias who had not yet suffered death. Furthermore, he signified by this that the doctrine of the prophets was the schoolmaster to the doctrine of Christ. He also signified the junction of the New and Old Testament and that the apostles shall be joined in the resurrection with the prophets and both together shall go forth to meet 
their common king. Close quote. That's St. John Chrysostom. Powerful. So there are so many different layers of meaning here, my friends. Now, getting back to the gospel text as we wrap this up, it states here in verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so Jesus commands his disciples as they're descending the mountain. He commands them not to share, not to tell of this vision, namely his transfiguration, not to share this, not to divulge what took place until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Okay, what's going on here? Well, he has spoken to them. If you back up to the previous chapter, chapter 16, Jesus begins to speak of his passion. He begins to deliver to them what biblical scholars refer to as his passion predictions. In verse 21 of chapter 16, we read, and I quote, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 22, And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Close quote. So Jesus in delivering this passion prediction, he's speaking to them of his impending passion and death on the cross, and he speaks of his glorious resurrection. But the disciples, particularly Simon Peter, he will have none of it. He begins to rebuke Jesus. God forbid that this should come to pass. He doesn't understand what the Lord has in store. And so they're descending the mountain of transfiguration And Jesus commands them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, why is he commanding them to keep this a secret? Why did he bring them up there to begin with? Jesus brings his three closest disciples, his inner circle, up the mountain of transfiguration. This is going to be the same inner circle that is privy to Jesus' most vulnerable moment as they ascend another mountain namely the Mount of Olives, and they enter the Garden of Gethsemane. We're told that he takes with him these three disciples, these same disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he beckons them, he exhorts them, begs them to remain awake, to hold vigil with him as he prayed. We know that they succumbed to their drowsiness, and they fell asleep during Jesus' most agonizing moment as he prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat droplets of blood, as he experienced the beginning of his passion. He brought these three disciples, giving them a glimpse here on the Mount of Transfiguration of his divinity and on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. He gave them a glimpse of his humanity. He was sorrowful even unto death. Why does he command them to keep this account of his glorious transfiguration to themselves. Well, he brings them up the mountain, these three, in order to strengthen their faith. 
in order to fortify them for what was to come. He had begun to speak to them of his impending passion, that he would be rejected, that he would be handed over to the religious authorities that were conspiring to kill him, and that he would suffer a passion, an excruciating passion, and that he would be crucified, he would be put to death. And they could not accept that. And so he, knowing full well that his disciples would struggle with the events that were to unfold, he gives his closest disciples a glimpse of his glory. In the fashion of Moses, in the steps of Moses, he ascends the mountain with his three closest collaborators, his disciples. He gives them a glimpse of his glory. They hear the voice of the Father. They witness the testimony of the great prophets, Moses and Elijah, in order to strengthen and fortify their faith because Jesus knew full well what awaited him. He knew full well that he would have to endure his passion. And he wanted to give them a glimpse of his glory to fortify and strengthen their faith. And the transfiguration on the mountain of God, this glorious event, is one that can be contrasted with Jesus on another mountain, on Mount Calvary. In the international critical commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, authored by Dale C. Allison Jr. and W.D. Davies, they compare and they contrast Mount Tabor, or the Mount of Transfiguration, with Mount Calvary. They compare and they contrast the transfiguration with the crucifixion. They state, and I quote, in the one, a private epiphany, an exalted Jesus with garments glistening, stands on a high mountain and is flanked by two religious giants from the past. All is light. In the other, a public spectacle, a humiliated Jesus, whose clothes have been torn from him and divided, is lifted upon a cross and flanked by two common convicted criminals. All is darkness. We have here a pictorial antithetical parallelism, a diptych in which the two plates have similar lines but different colors. Close quote. That's powerful. They see, they're comparing and contrasting the transfiguration with the crucifixion. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples beheld a glimpse of his glory. On the Mount of Crucifixion, on Mount Calvary, they beheld his humanity, his crucified flesh. My friends, these two mounts are inextricably bound together, the Mount of Transfiguration and Mount Calvary. One could say that Jesus could see from that Mount of Transfiguration that other mount that awaited him, that he would have to ascend as he bore that old rugged cross, which is that instrument of salvation. And so as we are presented with this account of the transfiguration, know full well that this is but a prelude to the passion. Keep that in mind, because again, all these readings beginning with the temptation in the wilderness, now continuing with the transfiguration. All this is pointing forward to the events of Holy Week, the passion, the death, 
and the resurrection of Jesus because Lent is a prelude, a preparation for Easter. Now, with that said, let us briefly turn our attention to today's first reading, which is taken from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4a. Now, before we dive into this very brief pericope, let me just remind you that during this holy season of Lent, Holy Mother Church furnishes us for the first reading specifically with what I would call the greatest hits of salvation history. We're going to be seeing for every one of these Sundays, the church presents to us a pivotal moment in the history of salvation. Now, why is that? Well, we're preparing to celebrate the Easter mysteries. And all of salvation history points forward to not only the coming of Christ, but his passion, death, and resurrection. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and all the promises of the Old Testament. Everything points forward to the coming of Christ and to the cross of Christ. And this is especially beneficial for our beloved catechumens who are preparing to be initiated into the church, preparing to receive the sacraments. And they're going to receive this this overview, this survey of salvation history that they're going to be meditating upon as they prepare to enter into the Easter mysteries. And we, by extension, are on this journey as well. And so just be aware of that as we go through these passages. They are chosen for very specific reasons, to help us as we survey salvation history, as we survey the life of our blessed Lord. All of this is prelude. All of this points forward to the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So with that said, let's dive into this very brief passage. We pick up in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse. And by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's going on here? We have a very short passage, but don't let its brevity fool you. It is incredibly significant. What we find here is is God calling Abram and issuing to him a threefold promise of blessing. I want to very briefly highlight this threefold promise of blessing for you. He is calling Abram to embark upon a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage that will not only change his life, but change the course of human history. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, namely the promised land. He continues, and I will make of you, here we go, a great nation. That's the first promise of blessing, a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. So we have the promise of making him a great nation. We have the promise of making his name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you, I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. That is the third promise of blessing. So once again, a great nation, a great name, 
and that all the families of the earth shall bless themselves, namely a worldwide blessing. These are the three promises that God makes to Abram. Now, why is this significant? Well, let me just break it down for you in this way. The first promise is that God would make of Abram a great nation. Now, we know full well that Abram did not have any children. And at this point, he was 75 years old. He was an old man. And he lamented the fact that he had no children. Children were considered a true blessing from God. And yet he had no heir. He had no son. He had no child, no progeny to speak of. God appears to him and he promises him that he will make of him a great nation. Now, this promise, later on, if you jump to Genesis chapter 15, is upgraded to a covenant and is fulfilled in Moses. Now, how can we say that? Well, again, I don't have time to dive into it here, but I'm going to encourage you to turn over to chapter 15 of Genesis, and you're going to see that God speaks of the descendants of Abram who will be enslaved, who will be held in bondage and in captivity for 400 years, but that God would deliver them. Ultimately, we know through his servant Moses. And so in this way, he is promising to Abram. This promise will be elevated into a covenant in Genesis 15. He's going to promise to make of him a great nation. That would be the nation of Israel that would issue forth from the loins of Abram, who will then be renamed Abraham. And that brings us to our second promise of blessing, namely that God would make his name great. And we find this promise of blessing upgraded to a covenant in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. If you read that chapter, you're going to see that God gives Abram a new name, Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And so here he's promising to make his name great. And this promise of making his name great is fulfilled in the person of David, King David, who was the ruler over many nations. He's a ruler over an entire kingdom that is meant to be a blessing, not just for Israel, but for all the nations of the world. And so this promise that he will make his name great, we find this promise upgraded to the level of covenant in chapter 17. He gives him a new name. He's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. His name shall be great. And speaking of name, and considering the person of David, who is the fulfillment of this particular promise, that points forward. That points forward to the son of David. And I'm just speaking of Solomon, his direct heir, but I'm speaking of the ultimate son of David, who is Jesus Christ, who is of the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of David. He's a descendant of the house of Judah. And as such, he is, as the scripture declares, the son of David. Abraham's name is truly made great and is fulfilled in the person of David. And this brings us to our third promise of blessing, that all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. This is a universal or worldwide blessing, which when you jump to chapter 22 
Much like the other promises of blessing, this promise too was upgraded to the level of covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis. And if you remember in chapter 22, God requires that Abraham take his only beloved son and that he travel with him to Mount Moriah, where he was to sacrifice him in obedience to God's command. And we know that in this story, Abraham demonstrates his fidelity, but this was but a foreshadowing of what would take place with the coming of Christ, the only beloved son of the Father. And God, in his divine providence, is foreshadowing here the coming of Christ, the true Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed on that very same mount. Mount Moriah is the very location for what we refer to as Mount Calvary, where the true Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, the eternally begotten and beloved Son of the Father, was sacrificed for our salvation. And thus, he becomes a worldwide blessing for all families, for all tribes, for all nations. This universal blessing is brought forth by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And so, Each of these promises of blessings are elevated to covenants and find their fulfillment in the person of Moses, in the person of David, and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. So with that said, again, I know that's a lot. I'm going to encourage you to visit those chapters and to see for yourself how these promises of blessing are upgraded to the level of covenant in the three covenants established by God with Abraham. It's very profound, my friends. So we jump now to our responsorial psalm, which is Psalm 33. The refrain or the response for this psalm is, Lord, let your mercy be on us as we place our trust in you. And how fitting it is that we're focusing in on this particular psalm, especially after having read the account of the call of Abram, who's our father in the faith, who's a model for what it means to trust in the Lord. He left his his homeland, he left his, his kinfolk, and he embarked upon a pilgrimage in obedience to God. He trusted the Lord. We're also called to trust the Lord as he beckons us to embark upon our own pilgrimage. And Jesus crystallizes this for us. It is going to be an arduous pilgrimage, a difficult pilgrimage, We're going to have to deny ourselves, bear our crosses, and follow Jesus to Calvary. This is a pilgrimage laden with with suffering, but ultimately it will result in redemption. And so as we read this psalm, let us be mindful of the example of, of Abram, who becomes Abraham, the example of Jesus, who exhorted his disciples, who foretold of his own passion, Not only did he foretell of his own passion, but he reminded his disciples that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We are each called to embark upon this pilgrimage. And we, during this holy season of Lent, in a very intense way, we are living out this call to follow after Jesus. Lord, let your mercy be upon us as we place our trust in you. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. 
The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Verse 19, That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Verse 20, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Verse 22, Let thy steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in thee. Close quote. Beautiful. And finally, let's turn to our epistle, which is taken from the second letter of St. Paul to Timothy, his disciple. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we read as follows, and I quote, Do not be ashamed, then, of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but take your share of suffering for the gospel in the power of God. Stop there for a second. St. Paul is reminding Timothy, he too is on a pilgrimage, on a journey. He's been called to, to bear his own cross and to suffer for the cause of Christ. Again, this passage is chosen and is harmonized with this theme of, of this pilgrimage, this journey. We're told that, that from the transfiguration of Jesus, from that moment on, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that is a phrase that reflects the resoluteness of Jesus. Upon being transfigured on the mountain, he then sets his face to Jerusalem. He's begun the final phase of his pilgrimage towards the cross, a pilgrimage that began with his very incarnation, with his birth. The shadow of the cross was cast over him from the very moment of his birth. And now he begins the final leg of his pilgrimage from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going to ascend another mount, Mount Calvary, where he will suffer and die for our sins. And so here St. Paul is reminding Timothy of his call to bear his own cross, to bear sufferings for the sake of the gospel. Do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but take your share of suffering for the gospel in the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. God calls us to holiness. God calls us to the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. And called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our own works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago and now has manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so in this passage, we have an exhortation to suffer well, to embrace suffering for the cause of Christ. And we too, like St. Timothy, are exhorted by Holy Mother Church to stay the course, to remain faithful, to trust in the Lord who will never leave us nor forsake us. A powerful message for us as we continue our Lenten pilgrimage. And in closing, what I'd like to do, as is my custom, I'd like to just cite one 
brief but relevant passage from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And this is taken from paragraph 555, and it's related to the mystery of the transfiguration. It states, and I quote, For a moment, Jesus discloses his divine glory. This is speaking of the transfiguration, confirming Peter's confession. Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. The Catechism continues, He also reveals that he will have to go by the way of the cross at Jerusalem in order to, quote, enter into his glory, unquote. Moses and Elijah had seen God's glory on the mountain. The law and the prophets had announced the Messiah's sufferings. Christ's passion is the will of the Father. The Son acts as God's servant. The cloud indicates the presence of the Holy Spirit. Quote, the whole Trinity appeared. The Father in the voice, the Son in the man, the Spirit in the shining cloud. Unquote. Let me stop there for a second. This paragraph from the Catechism underscores the fact that in the Transfiguration, we have a theophany. We have a Trinitarian theophany, a manifestation of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity, the Father in the voice, the Son in the man, and the Spirit in the shining cloud. And this correlates beautifully with the baptism of our Lord, which is also a Trinitarian theophany, a manifestation of the Holy Trinity. You have God the Father in the voice, you have the Son in the man, and the Holy Spirit in the baptism account manifests himself under the form of a dove. And so in both accounts, the baptism and here in the transfiguration, we find a Trinitarian theophany, a manifestation of the Holy Trinity. And then the paragraph concludes with a citation of a prayer, a Byzantine prayer for the great feast of the transfiguration. Quote, you were transfigured on the mountain and your disciples, as much as they were capable of it, beheld your glory, O Christ our God so that when they should see you crucified, they would understand that your passion was voluntary and proclaim to the world that you truly are the splendor of the Father. Close quote. Isn't that beautiful? So profound. Well, my friends, as we bring this episode to a close, I want to offer you a word of encouragement to continue pondering, to continue reflecting upon these profound passages that are nothing short of inspiring. I want to encourage you to reflect upon the fact that that Jesus beckons us as he did Peter, James, and John 2,000 years ago. He beckons us too to ascend the mountain. You see, this Sunday we will be ascending the mountain of the Lord as we gather to celebrate the divine liturgy. And at the divine liturgy, we, like Peter, James, and John, we behold the glory of the Lord. We behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Ordinary bread and wine are transubstantiated into the glorified body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ himself. God becomes food for us. Oftentimes we lose sight of the great grace, the great miracles that unfold before our very eyes. My prayer, my brothers and sisters, is that our 
spiritual sight might be restored and that as we approach the altar of the Lord, the throne of grace this Sunday, that we might open our hearts, our souls, our minds to the great miracle that unfolds before our eyes at every liturgy as God becomes food for us, the true and living bread, the true and living manna come down from heaven, the bread of angels. At every liturgy, our faith is strengthened, emboldened by the word of God and by the sacrament of his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. And when we gather to celebrate the divine liturgy, Christ wishes to nourish us, to strengthen us, to fortify us for the journey. Because when we leave the celebration of the great liturgy, we will be descending the mountain and continuing our pilgrimage. And our Lord knows that this pilgrimage is a difficult one. He knows that, that each of us is bearing our own crosses and will be made to suffer on account of Christ. But he wishes to fortify us for the journey as he did 2,000 years ago with his disciples Peter, James, and John. He wishes to strengthen our faith so that we might endure until the end. Well, my friends, on that note, we bring this episode to a close. As always, my hope and prayer is that this podcast and podcast series has been and continues to be a source of blessing for you. If it has been, praise God for that. I want to encourage you, if you're watching this via our YouTube channel, to hit the like button. And what's more, if you have yet to subscribe to the channel, please do so. By liking and subscribing, you indicate to YouTube that there's value in this content and they will be more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. And that's the whole point of this channel. It's to make Christ known. So help us to reach others by liking, by commenting, by subscribing. Share this link far and wide. What's more, if you wish to partner with me in this endeavor and help me to make this podcast a blessing for others, please consider becoming a patron of this ministry of Upper Room Studios. You can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. On that page, you'll see a number of different levels of patronage and support for as little as $5 a month. You can become a patron. The cost of a fancy cup of coffee. You can become a patron and you can be supporting this effort of evangelization. So please consider becoming a patron today. Speaking of patrons, as always, I want to thank my amazing community of patrons, my faithful supporters. Without their support and encouragement, I wouldn't be able to do this. So continued blessings upon you and my heartfelt thanks for all that you do for your partnership which means the world to me so my friends on that note until we gather again to reflect upon the readings for the third sunday of lent my prayer continues to be for you in the words of the apostle paul in colossians 3 verse 16 may the word of god continue to richly dwell in you god love you